0: If you would, uh, join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 8. As we look to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer and ask for His help. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, um, we desire our hearts to find rest in You. And Father, we thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us through your word, uh, that we could know what we are to believe about you and also what you ask of your people. Father, would you be pleased to open our hearts, open our minds to embrace and know your truth. And indeed, we would grow in our desire and ability to find our rest in you. We thank you, Father, for your word, and we ask your spirit to give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by uh, talking about x-rays. You know, some of us have run into things, and all of a sudden it hurts really bad. And the x-ray confirms, indeed, that something is wrong, something often is broken, I want to think also about the x-rays there at uh, at the airport, just right down the road from us. You know, kids, I'm sure most all of you, most all of you have probably been through the x-ray machines. You know, you've put your carry-on bags through the x-ray, and you yourself have walked through um, some kind of uh, x-ray device. And that's, of course, to find out what's on the inside of the luggage, to find out uh, Uh, what's on your person Um, what actually is in you at times Uh, those x-rays are rather revealing and they're necessary in this day and age well we're going to be looking as it were at a form of x-ray here in the scripture because when someone's When someone is exposed to the gospel, when someone is exposed to this message that has been proclaimed, the gospel, like an x-ray, exposes the heart. The heart can no longer remain hidden. It is exposed. The heart becomes visible with the x-ray, as it were, of the gospel. It says, it finds out, is the heart soft and repentant, or is the The heart hard and unrepentant. Acts, as we've been seeing, is a record of the expansion and growth of the church. A record of the expansion and growth of the work of the gospel. The gospel that exposes people's hearts. Here we are at week number 22 of looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission An exposition of the book of Acts. Acts is indeed like an anchor it holds us back to the faith once and for all received it's also like an engine in that it moves us ahead it is as it were like that missions organization called acts 29 that gives the idea that acts is not finished yet it's moving us forward in our mission as a church. Well, last week we saw in uh, chapter 8 an account of Philip's ministry in the north and in the south, and we saw two examples of early Christian evangelism, that is, getting the gospel out, getting the good news out about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for sinners. One was public proclamation, and the other was personal testimony. And in considering them, we saw something of the nature of the gospel, the nature of evangelism, and the nature of the new life. Well, our text today is a flashback of sorts to an incident during the time of Philip's ministry in the north, in Samaria, that Luke obviously wants us to know about. This morning, we're going to take a look at this curious or strange case of Simon. We're going to do that by considering his response to the proclamation of the gospel, his request to the apostles after seeing people receive the Holy Spirit, and finally, his rebuke by Peter. I want to begin uh, looking at Simon's response and we're going to look at verses 9 through 13 but let's go ahead and read again verses 4 through 8 to kind of give us some background. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because, for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So let's look at the situation in Samaria. It's located between Judea and Galilee, between Jerusalem and Galilee. Uh, The Samaritans, as we know, they're despised by the Jews as hybrids, both in race and race. And religion. At the time of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John 4, we we hear this statement that Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And yet the gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And we saw last week that it's the nature of the gospel to, to spread, to conquer, to overcome, and to produce joy. That's what's going on in Samaria. But here comes Simon. Simon the sorcerer, the magician. Simon Magnus, as uh, church history uh, knows him, uh, about not a lot of information in the scriptures themselves. In fact, Luke is providing the only information. And yet, some of the early church fathers uh, even gave... because of Simon, who he was and what he did, kind of a particular sin, the sin of simony, where money could be used to get positions in the church. Um, How would you like to be known for that, that a a particular sin was named after you? He practiced magic. He amazed the people, and he thought of himself as great. You know, sometimes we, we see people, we look in the mirror and we think ourselves as great, but here, Luke's description of it is Simon thought of himself as as great, and the people paid attention to him. They thought he was divine because he amazed them with magic. If you didn't pick this up already, Simon seems to have a huge influence in Samaria. He calls himself great. He draws attention to himself and his own work. We contrast that um, with um, Philip, who's going to point... Not to himself, but, but to Jesus, to the Christ. We, we think of Simon, or excuse me, Stephen, who points not to himself, but to Jesus. And yet here is Simon, the magician. He says he's great. People think he's great. He thinks he's amazing. People are amazed. It's a focus on a person or a focus on the person and work of Jesus. Well, how does Simon respond We see that in verse 13. He makes a profession of faith because uh, Philip's been preaching what the, um, the gospel, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. In verse 12, the kingdom of God is not just the gospel, but the kingship and sovereignty of God in the world in opposition to Satan. The name of Jesus Christ. Kids, when you you see that in Scripture, what you should think is it's the full revelation of the Son of God, including his earthly ministry and his divine office. Jesus, in Mark, we know, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Why? Because the king is here. The kingdom is here, and that is the message that the apostles, messages like Stephen and Philip, are proclaiming. Because of that, people believe the message and are baptized. They had been believing, as it were, the message of Simon, and now they're believing the gospel. Simon realizes that someone more powerful than him is now in Samaria. And verse 13 again, even Simon himself believed. He makes a credible profession of faith, and he joins the crowd, as it were. But the story of Simon continues, and we need to pick that up in verse uh, 14. And I want to begin, uh, in terms of looking at Simon's request, with a history lesson, a history lesson in the history of redemption. Join with me as I read verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Samaria is a unique, as it were, unrepeatable moment as the gospel expands outward from Jerusalem we're entering a new phase Jesus has said you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth and we see that happening the gospel is crossing a new ethnic frontier they're going in the gospel's going in as it were to no man's land between Israel and the pagan world Jewish believers would have found this difficult to accept The coming, if you recall on the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit demonstrated equality within the church as the Spirit fell on all of those gathered. It it emphasized full participation, equal participation in the church. And here it it seems, and scholars have wrestled with this and theologians have uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is going on, and I think it's It's this, it's God has waited to bestow his spirit until the apostles from the mother church in Jerusalem were present to welcome and to witness God's welcome of these new brothers and sisters in Christ. In a few weeks, we will see the gospel go out to the Gentiles. We'll see Peter and Cornelius. We'll hear the gospel is going out beyond Jerusalem. It's going out to Samaria. And the mother church in Jerusalem, as it were, God is giving his approval of what is taking place through their participation. He's signifying through the apostles, again, Peter and John are representatives of the Jerusalem church, that God officially approves of this new level of development of the church. Uh, Here's a, a case of early church government in action. The men who were called to serve and to love and to care for the church, as the church grows... to to be out there amongst the people in whom God is at work. It's interesting that it's Peter and John, because if you're familiar with Luke 9, verse 54, when John was thinking about Samaria, what did he want to do? He wanted to call fire down upon Samaria, to destroy Samaria, and now he is there witnessing the work of the Lord In taking the good news of Jesus out beyond, as it were, the Jewish nation. Before, John wanted to destroy Samaria and now he rejoices. You think Peter makes a big transformation in the scriptures? Absolutely. You think John makes a big transformation? Absolutely. Do you think anybody that comes to faith in Jesus Christ changes? Absolutely. Well, here's... Simon's request it's it's his second response and it's a request a request for power join with me as I pick up on in verse 18 now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands he offered them money saying give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit He offered them money and he said, give me this power also. Notice he's not asking for the Holy Spirit, but he's asking for power. You see, in his magic kingdom, power can be purchased. His old lust for power has been revived. Simon is thinking of his old ways of how power is is used. So here the gospel has been proclaimed and people are responding, and Simon himself has said, I believe. But someone is not converted in order to have power over people. There's no heart change. Someone's not converted in order to have approval from people. There's no heart change. We're going to talk about that in more detail in just a few minutes. So, if we leave off with verse 19, it's like the end of part one of a two part episode. Will Simon get the power? Will the apostles get the money? Some of you may be hearing some Latin these days out in the news a quid pro quo, a this for that. Here is an example. Simon wants the power, and he thinks, wrongly of course, that the apostles want the money. He says he's believed, but the question is has he been converted at the level of the heart? Well, let's pick up with verse 20 and take a look now at Simon's rebuke. Not the rebuke that Simon gives, but the rebuke that Simon receives. Join with me as I pick up in verse uh, 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. See, Peter is saying, in effect, that faith is a matter of the heart, and your heart is not right. Simon saw the promise of profit, but God's gift is not for sale. Think about that, kids. God's gift is not for sale. It's a gift. The Spirit is not a commodity to be bought and sold, to be purchased. Look with me again at verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Interestingly, a wooden literal translation of this verse from the original language is is a translation that J.B. Phillips uses, and it goes like this. To hell with you and your money. And that's not a curse word, but it is indeed involve a cursing. Because that's what's going on. Peter is speaking this in stark terms. It's the utterance of a curse against Simon. It's consigning him and his money to destruction. See, Peter makes that statement at the end of verse 21. Your heart is not right before God. Your heart is poisoned and bound in sin's chains. His fundamental attitudes, Peter is saying, are out of harmony with those of God's. At the beginning of verse 21 Peter makes a statement, you have no part or share in this teaching, preaching, the blessings of the gospel. He observes in verse 23 that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He he remarks about the intent of his heart. And then Peter, in the middle of that, gives a command, repent and pray. Repent and pray. And with this rebuke, Peter is testing Simon's heart. And and Simon's response is going to indicate the status of his relationship with God. And what is Simon's response to this rebuke? We see it again in verse 24. Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. There's kind of a problem with that. The, The motivation for his prayer seems to be, hey, I want to avoid the consequences. You say this is bad. I agree that this is bad. I don't want it to happen. He's sort of also passing the buck. Peter says, repent and pray. And Simon says, would you pray for me? Simon wants freedom. Freedom from punishment. He does not want the true freedom that God gives. True freedom that would show itself as no longer a lust for power, understanding that the gift of God is indeed a free gift. Now, I want us to think for a few minutes about the rebuke, and I want to think about the double-sided nature of a a rebuke. And the first side is testing, testing. You see, this rebuke is like an x-ray in that it's going to reveal what's on the inside. It's going to reveal a heart that's soft, before the lord or a heart that's hard before the lord you see testing determines the character of faith whether it's false or true faith based on the object Um, kids from a distance can you tell the difference between flour and sugar can you from a distance you know i get asked occasionally could i go get the sugar from the pantry And I go into the sugar, and there's a container that's white powder. And right beside it is a container of white powder. And we haven't been smart enough to label them yet. Um, So I oftentimes get the wrong one until I look closely and I see the sugar is sugar and flour is flour. But it's, how else could you do it? You could taste it, right? Flour tastes like flour and sugar tastes like sugar. And so this rebuke, this test is like a tasting, It's it's going to find out what is that material. Because there is going to be a test, isn't there, on that day of judgment where false faith will be revealed and true faith will be revealed. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, as you see part of his words quoted there in the Something to Think About quote, writes this, Simon's attempt to control and manipulate sovereign grace was especially crass but we too have ways by which we try to put God in our debt or to force his hand. Even our devotion, self discipline, and self sacrifice can be turned into tools to leverage our desires from God. Do you need to heed Peter's call to repent from efforts to control what could only be received as a gift of sheer grace? Commentaries like this uh, are, are tough because as you're reading them and trying to using them to help you understand God's word, all of a sudden you get the question. Are you more like Simon than you realize? Do you understand that God's gift is free? Are you trying to buy it and sell it? Are you trying to somehow get religion for what you think it can do for you? for your status, for your reputation? You know, the other day, somebody, I asked him how I could pray for him, and he said, uh, pray this prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that the case? There's a little bit of Simon in all of us. So on the first side of this double-sided nature of the rebuke is testing, but there's another side, and the other side is mercy. You see, Peter was extending mercy to Simon because he said Simon was sinning in ignorance. Notice that expression. Because you thought. You see, this is really good news because there is the possibility of forgiveness even for serious sin. Think about Peter himself. Peter who's been the recipient of mercy, is now, as it were, offering mercy. And yet, based on the text before us, the response of Simon is unclear. You know, it's open-ended so that the reader, that's you and me, is called to ponder the proper response. The story of Simon ends... And we don't know what happened to Simon. Now, church history kind of paints a pretty bad picture. But we just don't know based on Scripture. And in verse 25, we see this summary of the Samaritan ministry. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You see, this is a three point sermon, right? There's no fourth point. There's no repentance that we see. See, I would have loved to have had point four, Simon's repentance. But it's not there. We don't see it. You see, repentance and faith, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. Repentance is so important, that's the article that's in our visitors' welcome and information folder. Repenting always. You see, the gospel calls us to both repent and turn away from sin and turn to Jesus in faith. It's the one message. It's the two-cycle engine. Repent and believe. It's repentance and faith. And because there's no fourth point, because there's no repentance, there's also no joy. The story of Simon does not end with joy. Do you remember last week? Samaria, by and large, great joy. The Ethiopian eunuch, he goes away rejoicing. For Simon, there's no repentance and there's no joy. So why is this story of Simon included here in the Bible? I believe it's a warning to all of us, a test of sorts. You see, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter whether or not we know the true spiritual state of Simon. That's not the point of the text. We are not responsible for having some kind of complete certainty as to the eternal state of Simon. However... What does matter is our spiritual state. You're not responsible for Simon, but you are responsible for you. And as we've been seen in Acts, our hearts are exposed by the gospel. To be sure what's on the inside can and will be seen on the outside eventually. But the gospel goes to the level of the heart. The intents of the heart. The motivations of the heart. The hidden recesses where you think nobody knows. Of course, God knows. My friends, when you look into the mirror of the word of God, what do you see? As we heard from Hebrews 4, the word of God really is a double-edged sword that can penetrate to the very recesses of our heart. So my friends, as we finish up, take a look first at yourself. But don't stop there. Take a look at Jesus Christ, whose earthly life and ministry showed exposure of heart after exposure of heart. Some people went away sad and did not follow, and others found life in Him and followed Him. God's Word enables us, by His Spirit, to look both at ourselves and to look at the one and only Savior that is provided. My friends... Take a look at who you are, and take a look at who Jesus is. As we sang earlier, Jesus, exclamation point. What a friend for sinners, exclamation point. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, none of us like to be exposed in the summer, we don't want to be exposed to the burning rays of the sun. And in the winter, we don't want to be exposed to the freezing air. But Father, physical exposure is one thing and spiritual exposure is quite another. I pray, Father, that you would show us more and more How it is good news when the thoughts and intentions of our heart are revealed. Because then the great physician, the one whose surgery is always successful, can give us a new heart, can repair a damaged heart, can do whatever is needed so that we would have life in the here and now and life forever with you. We pray with thankful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.